Welcome to Foreman of Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we're live today and taking your calls, 410-662-8780. Or you can reach us via email, foremanwolf at wipr.org. And today, it's funny, I mean, I guess I'm an entire holiday late thinking about this end, but... <laughs> what? No. That's the, have- my... my because the the question we wanted to discuss was, what is American food? And so, of course, we're doing that Labor Day weekend instead of July Fourth weekend. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's okay. No. So, but that that's the question we'd like you to participate in the in the conversation. Are there dishes that you think are archetypal? Are there uh, particular veins of of growth or credit to be given? Uh, to different cultures, different places. I, Lord knows you've heard me blather on about studying philosophy plenty, Cindy, right? Mm-hmm. So it's an existentialist question that I have. Where are we? <laughs> mm-hmm. what, what are we as a people, uh, as Americans? What is American food? Because, I mean, Lord knows, I think that cooking reflects an awful lot about people and priorities and Absolutely. what makes up people. So, and what do I you think, think I think we've all realized too over the last year and a half uh, just what a priority food is for us because we weren't able to get it very easily there for a while. Um, it didn't feel safe to go out and get it, um, and we weren't able to share it with all the people we would like to share it with at any given time, which was really something tough to have taken away from us because. We do love food in this country, like all countries, and we love being around the table together and sharing that time together. It can be, you know, so many things about life occur at the table. So for me, what I think American food is, and having lived in both North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, New York, Washington, D.C., Northern Indiana, as some of the places that I've lived in my life, and South Carolina, of course, um, I've been exposed to many different types of cooking that's traditional in the United States to those regions. And it's influenced as always by the product that's grown in the regions. Uh, what is indigenous? And having done a tremendous amount of research on low country cooking, you know, I know that even Christopher Columbus coming over here, uh, you know, affected what was, what is now indigenous in the, in the uh, low country area. There, he brought there, you know, now there are pomegranates grown there. That was not something that was there prior to his uh, visits. Um, and other, you know, and uh, I believe some sort of orange, uh, but there, I'm sure there's lots of products that have been affected by people's travels coming to this country, uh, both for their own desire, because they'd like to have things that remind them of their homeland, um, like peanuts for the West Africans, eggplants, um, tomato being brought here. Uh, all these things are so important to our cooking. So what it comes down to is we are influenced by all the people that have ever lived here. That's that's all, all I can say. It's the absolute truth. Uh, so many different cultures influence our cooking. And of course, the Native Americans uh, are, are one of the foundations of our cooking because their influence is the foundation of our cooking because of the product that they grew uh, for all those hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and the 
the understanding of animal husbandry and also how agriculture, uh, because of the Native, Native Americans understanding how beans and squash can grow together in the same field, things like that. All of those things are ancient to this country and um, are our foundation. So we are kind of everything here, which is really beautiful and amazing. I'm, I'm going to wonder if um, maybe a caller can help us with a, a fact question. I thought that tomatoes were a Native American species and that they went to Europe from here, just like potatoes. Okay. But, <laughs> but, my fault. I thought Christopher Columbus no, no. was responsible for that. Um, I, you know, I, I obviously, I guess it is in traditional even, even, even that Central American is, cooking. It's a complicated question. There's, okay. And there's so much exchange back and forth in the world, absolutely. Um, but... I mean, it's it's funny enough that it's an Italian, you know, it's a Genovese that's traveling for the Spanish crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's an Italian that brought the Spanish crown to the New World, which is why an awful lot of the New World speaks Spanish. But but mm-hmm. what, when you think of American food, if someone, had to, if someone was going to ask you to make a list, what are the 10 things that... that you know, make up American cooking. You're going to produce a menu of ten things that well, see, are that, that that are the ultimate American dishes. What does that mean? I tend to go to products rather than specific dishes. Um, I mean, that's what immediately. I mean, I immediately start thinking about corn and squash. So, what are dishes that are traditional in this comp- country that are made from that? Like my upbringing, my parents being Pennsylvania Dutch, a traditional corn dish would be Pennsylvania Dutch chicken corn soup which is, you know, not certainly, you know, hundreds of years old, but, you know, it's old. And, um, you know, so I think of corn, I think of squash, um, I think of our beef cattle, uh, you know, all the dishes that we make in this country with beef. And uh, we think of the cheese that we make here that is become much, much better than it was at one point in time. Um, But we think of the cheddars, and certainly that is, is a very important cheese that's made in our country. We think of goat's milk cheeses. Um, and I think of, you know, the things like watermelon and peanuts, something like boiled peanuts. I, I mean, that's just so traditionally Southern. Um, uh, those are... Yet we, those, know, yet we know that that's an African product. Exactly. You know, I mean, that's it's the more that you think about the question, the more it like unfolds and unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, everything is either borrowed, stolen, imported, <laughs> or right. amalgamated into something entirely different. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many different versions of melting pot cooking are there in the United States? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we you, think of you, you, mm-hmm. low, low country you think about, but then think about Creole cooking, right. I was just going to say gumbos, you know, all the Creole dishes, also sauerkraut, which is very German. And, you know, my my ancestors are German and my grandfather used to great grandfather used to make their own sauerkraut. My grandmother always had a barrel of sauerkraut working and that's their ancestry. That's in the same way that in the United States now, I mean, you go, you know what neighborhood to go to to get uh, tortillas from. Uh, someone who's just gotten here from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Unlike right. your great-grandparents who had just gotten here from Germany, you know where to go get sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. And sausages. You know, those are also things that I think are very American, but are, of course, 
every other country's origin. We make great sausages here. What do you think of, Tony? Well, I was just going to invite listeners, give us a ring, 410-662-8780. And what, what makes up American food for you? What is the, is there an overriding influence? Is there one archetypal dish? The, the thing that my, my brain immediately goes to is an article I read some years ago that called the United States the empire of the hamburger. Mm. And, and I thought it was kind of comical because even, I mean, a hamburger is a person who is from Hamburg, which okay. is in Germany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, so it's a, a, a ground beef patty doing whatever you're going to do with it, right? Right. But just that alone, how many variations are there? Mm-hmm. How many how many versions are there? If you were going, you know, what would you put on a Hawaiian burger? What would you put on a, a Tex-Mex burger? What would you put on, you know what I mean? That mm-hmm. Just that alone, is that just a backdrop to, to show all of those different influences, different veins? Mm-hmm. You know, of of influence on food. Well, and I mean, something so American as macaroni and cheese is a pasta dish. You know, I mean, all of these and foie gras. You think about something like foie gras that comes from Europe. There are there are only a couple of farms in the U.S. Actually, I think we're down to one, or no, we're down to two uh, that I'm aware of. I mean, all these wonderful products that w- I don't believe foie gras was. You know, I believe that was brought by the Europeans. So you know. It's an amazing, amazing uh, influences from just everywhere. So let's go. Let's go back to that that menu. What are the What are the ten dishes? I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to it on the dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> pot pie, I think, is very American. Um, I said macaroni and cheese. You said hamburgers, uh, crab cakes. Obviously, we're in Maryland. Um, hot dogs, which are basically a force meat, which is a force meat, which is the same thing as a sausage. Um, so sausages and what soup? Tomato soup, tomato soup, and grilled cheese. I mean, those are things that are very, you know, accessible. And and then you have the Creole dishes like the and the gumbos. Um, any kind of gumbo dish, using crawfish in a gumbo, using shrimp in a gumbo, um, rice. I mean, I've asked you an impossible question, right? I'm I'm asking you this, and the two most popular foods in America, do you know what they are? No. The two biggest hot-button food, like, I want to eat that in the last uh, last 25 years, pizza, tacos. Mm. Oh, interesting. Crazy, right? Yep. So our our research department has already gotten back to us. Um, (laughs) According to the University of Illinois Horticulture Extension, (laughs) the origins of early tomatoes come from South America and was brought to the peoples of Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. There you go. South America. So let's go to to a caller. Let's talk to Greg in Baltimore. Greg, Greg, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Good. Great. This is also the Greg that brings you the black raspberries. Oh, hi, Greg. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Um, I had a, a lot of cabbage this last year, and I made my own sauerkraut, 
Mm. And I also experimented a little. I made kimchi mm -hmm. and cortito and sukimono, which are all um, made from cabbage and other ingredients. And it's just like so amazing when it's home brewed. Mm -hmm. And um, we made sauerkraut on St. Patrick's Day <laughs> and had it this last week. It was fermenting the whole time. That's awesome. And it was so good. It was awesome. so good. And the wow. kimchi, um, spicy version of, of, you know, and it, it's a Korean version. And cortito is the Latin American version. And sukimono is the Japanese version. They're all a little different, but they all have cabbage. They're all fermented. They're all really, really good for you. Mm -hmm. um, and sukimono doesn't really mean cabbage. It, it means essential side dish. Like this is on the table all the time. Awesome. So um, I just, uh, I've been sharing it. I, I had a whole bunch of cabbage and I made like 20 gallons of sauerkraut and <laughs> been spreading it around the neighborhood and uh, friends at church and everything. And everyone says it's the best they ever had. Oh. And I know it's because it's homemade and, mm. and truly fermented and not some factory version, you know. Mm -hmm. What did you What did you pack it in? So it's sauerkraut? really really simple, and you use salt and whey. Mm -hmm. All of them, whatever ingredients you're fermenting: pickles, beets, um, the cabbage and carrots, and and ginger and and garlic and hot red pepper that are in um, kimchi. Mm -hmm. You just put um, a few tablespoons of whey, a few tablespoons of salt, and filtered water cover it so that the air doesn't touch it and let it ferment for a few weeks to a few months and mm. voila. Where did you get the whey? Um, I put a gallon jug of milk on the countertop and <laughs> let it sit for five days, um, put it through a cheesecloth awesome. and save the clear liquid as whey. You are awesome. You love mm -hmm. food. You're resourceful, if nothing else, Greg. Right, hey, Greg. Right. So what, don't, don't what, let anything go to waste. <laughs> uh, right on. I, I'm, I'm curious now because the topic being American food, and we're thinking we're talking about making you know, cabbage products from different cultures. Which culture is your background from? Where, where did that affection for sauerkraut begin? Um, my father's side is Bohemian, um, Czech. So. Mm -hmm. We always had sauerkraut, like a Sunday dinner and um, mm. potato dumplings and sauerkraut for holidays, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. And it was always like served with pork or with duck or goose or whatever you were having. Mm -hmm. um, but my grandmother also made big crocks of sauerkraut. And I just cleaned out a five-gallon bucket, chopped up nine cabbages, um, you know, I did a cabbage at a time. The secret also is to, to press it, to, um, to really mash it a little, um, pound it, um, so that it starts to release its juices. Mm -hmm. And then just a little bit of whey, a little bit of salt, the caraway seed, cover it with water, let it sit. You know, I, I would put a plate over the top with a little bit of, of clear wrap. And so that it's, it's submerged in the water. Mm -hmm. And it, it won't spoil. I mean, the spoiling is a fermentation. It's controlled 
spoiling. And it, um, it, I just can't, once I open a jar, I like can't put it down. I keep coming back and, <laughs> uh, I chopped up the tomato and put on a little cheese and cover it with sauerkraut or kimchi and just eat it. And I'm like, I want more. There you go. Good uh, job. Sounds Thanks like, for sharing that. It, it sounds wonderful and like you have a small problem there, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, hey, thanks very much for sharing. Yeah, yes. Pleasure. Sunday. Hey, thanks, Greg. So other, other listeners can join us and, and let us know about your culture, uh, cultural background, your heritage. How do you incorporate that into your, your modern American table or into your life or into your cooking? I'll be really curious to know. You can reach us 410-662-8780. Or email us foremanwolf at wipr.org. And we'll be back with more Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine Live on WIPR. This is Spencer Bryan on 88.1 WIPR. You're listening to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we're live today and we're talking about American food. And sounds really simple. Seems like it's a really, really complicated Mm-hmm. Question: There, there are so many origins and so many vectors and so many pieces of history, uh, and I think some some dishes are layered in ways. I was just thinking about the Low Country food. You spent so much time studying mm-hmm. how I know one of the original ways you started explaining it to folks was imagine African cooks being who knew how to deal with the products that that are part of their background getting French recipes from English, you know, fancy ladies mm-hmm. right. to do entertainment. Like, but working yeah. with products from the, you know, the, the Southeast right. United States. And what like just that, with, that alone right. is a crazy mm-hmm. amalgam right there. It really is. And that, you know, some beautiful cooking came from those influences. And... Again, I think it's a way for people to uh, share such an important part of their culture in combining all these different cultures together. But there, there was such a huge population of, Euro- of uh, French people in Charleston at one point because of the uh, Huguenots living there, moving there from uh, France. And, you know, that, that influence was just, that's one of the reasons why I like that particular cooking so much because of the tremendous amount of French influences on the cooking. So let's, uh, we, we, and we're taking your calls. You can join the conversation, 410-662-8780, or email us, foremanwolf at wipr.org. And remind me, Cindy, we've got emails to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk to Lynn in Baltimore. Lynn, how are you? Hi, Lynn. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Good. Um, when I think about American foods, I think blueberries and blueberry pie and things <laughs> made, other things made oh. with blueberries. Oh, and yeah. I, I think about cornflakes 
and uh, cornbread and greens, mm-hmm. um, the kind of greens that my grandma used to make. So that's, that's what I think of. Those are good memories. That's awesome. Do you make cornbread yourself? You know, I don't. Um, mm-hmm. When I do, it's usually Jesse Max. That's what my mom used to make. So. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you. This is a wonderful conversation. That's nice. Oh, thanks, Lynn. Thank you, Lynn. Thanks for calling in. Cindy, so just for fun, mm-hmm. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you for a cornbread recipe if, the, if someone else has not made cornbread because it's not so tough. Uh, no, it, it, it's, and it is it a is, happy thing. Yeah, it's I, I uh, don't have quantities in my head, of course, but in, in my corn, uh, cornbread recipe, we use buttermilk, um, a good quality, finely ground cornmeal. You don't want something that's too coarse. And that's, you know, always a bit of a challenge to find. Um, but anyway, you can also uh, get ground corn from Anson's Mill. And uh, eggs and corn oil. And it's just, you know, a lot of corn product, obviously. The buttermilk is extremely essential to it having the taste that you want. Oh, and sugar, I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that I would use corn oil since you're making cornbread. Um, I would use really fresh, wonderful eggs. Um, and the level of sugar is up to you. I, I think that's the biggest controversy in the South over cornbread is how sweet should it be? Um, and... Um, and you do put a pinch of salt in as well, just because you do with most baking products, um, a little tiny bit of salt. But yeah, that's that's it. And I, th- I think one of the secrets with making, we use cast iron pans that have the shape of the the uh, of a corn stalk, and um, or of a piece of corn, I guess I should say. Um, those pans we have used the same pans since the day we opened Charleston, and I expect they will last absolutely forever. Uh, so they are very very well seasoned because the restaurants what. 24 years old, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we have to get those pans very hot in a very hot oven, like a 425-degree convected oven. And they we use a, a pretty heavy-duty brush to uh, just brush out uh, between, because obviously we, we make multiple batches in those pans at a time. Uh, but yeah, the pans need to be super hot, and they are dry. You don't put any sort of, you don't put pan spray on them. You don't coat them with oil. Uh, once they're seasoned, um, as long as the pans are super hot and you have brushed out the last product from them, um, you, you should not have a sticking situation, and you should be able to wrap those hot pans on on a, well, see, I have stainless steel counters, and that's another good reason to have some stainless steel counters in your kitchen. I don't see somebody taking a, a, a cast iron pan and knocking it on a granite slab or, uh, you know, really marble or anything like that. Obviously, you're not going to do that, but you need to have somewhere where you can knock those pans on its side and those pieces of cornbread should fall right out. And cornbread is happy stuff. Mm-hmm. I always want mine not too sweet, but mm-hmm. I do want to put a little bit of blackberry jam or something on them. Yeah. It gives you yeah. more room. If there's, if it's not too sweet, you can add things that are sweet. That's I think that's what makes a difference. Absolutely. That So people can join the conversation. Call us 410-662-8780 or email us foremanwolf at wypr.org. And we've got emails to get to mm-hmm. um, a quick one about a past program from Diane recently a friend of mine based on your recommendation gave me a bottle of Chateau Simon rosé wine I would like to have your suggestions for what food to pair with this wine mm. 
the first thing that comes to my mind, Diane, is uh, Salad Niçoise mm. with the beautiful rare tuna and Niçoise olives and the, the hard-cooked eggs and haricot vert and, and little red-skinned potatoes and fresh tomato and, and, uh, and you know, a pretty creamy red wine vinaigrette, all of that sort of business. Uh, that does very well. It'll also take on something a bit more serious than that. If you if you have a, if it's a warm day and and it's a a pork dish that you that you place that you're um, that you're cooking or or something off the grill, nothing. It's not necessarily for pasta. It's not not necessarily for delicate fish, uh, but things with with big personality and can handle the acidity of tomato no problem. Uh, it's also relatively mild uh, goat's milk cheese great and just simple baguette just great i think tony do are you do you have another email i do mm-hmm. uh on american foods uh it's rocky from greensboro maryland uh when i think american i agree i can more readily think of ingredients it's pawpaw season here in zone mm-hmm. 7b mm-hmm. so i'd have to say foraged ingredients like pawpaws american persimmons and wild plums make me think of America. Whole dishes, I would have to say things like corned beef and cabbage, which come by way of Jewish and Irish foods inspired by new world availability. Overall, I think of immigrant foods made with deep-seated recipes from the old world, but that persist through the human need for comfort and familiarity when carving out an existence in a new land. Furthermore, the diversity that we celebrate in the country has spawned many takes on old world dishes that while cannot be called purely American, can represent the melting pot this country strives to be. That's beautiful. Really, that's really beautifully said. Thoughtful and, and beautifully yeah. said. And, Thank you. And yeah, that's the, the, the melting pot is the point, right? It's not, mm-hmm. it's not one thing or the other. Right. We've got, uh, we have a couple of callers to, to grab. Let's talk to Paul in Towson. Paul, how are you? Hi, Paul. I, I'm well, thank you. Uh, I, I see food as, as a way to break down differences or maybe stereotypes. I mean, Irish and the Italians historically didn't get along in this country. But as, as an Irishman told me, once you start eating Italian food, it's hard to dislike Italians if you like the food. And I think as, as we eat <laughs> Indian food or Peruvian food or Greek food, we just be we're, we're more willing to accept people who are not like us because we like their food. Okay. Well, f- food is the original gift, right, Paul? Exactly. And, 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 and with exactly. that, you're receiving a gift from another culture at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're, you know, you're that, being embraced by that culture, and you're embracing that culture. Mm-hmm. And learning, you're learning. And, and you're learning culture. You're learning mm-hmm. uh, habits. You're learning. A lot of times you learn about the similarities that you have. You know, you think that, right. oh, I'm Italian, they're Jewish or whatever. And then when you sit down and break bread together, you realize all the things you have in common. Oh, there's, there's crazy power in that, the, yeah. sharing, the, the sharing at the table. And throw in some wine and you have a party. Steady, Cindy. I love your show. Thank you. Hey, thank thanks, you, Paul. Thank thanks you. for the call. Yes, thank you. Uh, let's talk to Zena in Annapolis. Zena, how are you? Hi, Zena. I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. 
So here so, you got um, a, a a burger situation. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like the burger is really um, to most foreigners it would be the quintessential American dish, mm-hmm. and um, it being Labor Day, it's basically, I mean, what what's more fitting than a burger? And um, I make my burger using marjoram, um, onions, parsley, uh, season it with some cumin, paprika, and salt, of course, and. Wow. Um, I feel like it reminds me of a taste of back home. My parents are originally from Morocco. I'm a first-generation immigrant to this beautiful country of ours, and uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to share that. That's great. That's I would That's eat that cool. hamburger really, really happily. That sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yum. Yum, yum, yum. Good. Thank you for Thanks, that. Thanks, Anna. You're welcome. Oh, man. That, that wants a glass of something good, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, some really big gutsy Cotron village, something with a little bit of wildness and and some power to it. Maybe a vaquera or rasto, mm-hmm. something like that. Rasto. I love that town. Yeah. No, rasto, you know, that's anyway. I'm about to geek yeah. out on rasto. Right, right, right. Try to control myself. Do you the, know where the uh, first wine was grown in the U- U.S., Tony? I don't know. I'm asking. The first, I would expect it had to be on the East Coast. Okay. Uh, but you know that it, 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 I know wine is grown in about 40 states now. Wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. But the same thing I'll say to people about food we like, we work with a lot of local product or the good local product that we can, mm-hmm. but everywhere is not good at everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that's it's reasonable to expect that. And so sometimes you got to go outside of your zone for, uh, for excellence. But yeah, that's, it would have to be, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, all the, all the Rieslings from up near the Finger Lakes, it's not hard to figure out the origin of that story. Right. Uh, there in Pennsylvania, in Eastern Pennsylvania, there are a lot of hybrids. I believe some of the first hybrids, grapes, the European and American native hybrids happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, Chambersan and things like that. But so California came next because it was populated later. Well, I think California, especially like Sonoma County, for example, and Napa as well. You'll notice how many last names of the old wineries are Italian names, mm-hmm. uh, and and you have just historically big Spanish influence. So. Traditions and and origins in wine begin there, and then you have that second wave of European immigrants that that would bring cuttings from you know from Bordeaux and that and or decide that Burgundy those are the best whites and and some of the best reds in the world. So they would bring you know uh, plantings of uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. But then you got oddball stuff that people think of as being very American, uh, like the grape we call Zinfandel, and and also a good match for that burger that uh, Zane is cooking up. I'm kind of hungry for it now. Mm-hmm. And um, Zinfandel, I think it's pretty identifiable as at least three, if not four, grapes uh, that are all from the south of Italy that have all changed tremendously uh, being here in the states. One is Primitivo, that's the primary one. 
another Susana Mielo. Mm-hmm. So that's, but I mean, that's, it's, you know, the, the more we look at it, the more we see that these, these changes and these things becoming of here, but sourced elsewhere. And you can join the conversation, 410-662-8780. And let's talk to Michael and Timonium. Hi, Michael. Hi, hello. hello. Michael. So what uh, do we got? So I, was, I was thinking about the original question of uh, 10 dishes, if you had to name them, that are um, American foods. And uh, something that came to mind to me was barbecue. Um, knowing mm-hmm. that cultures across the globe all have their own version of barbecue, but I think especially about America, when you go to different parts of the country, um, barbecue means something completely different everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's really something interesting to, to celebrate about the way that we cook in America. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what, what makes good barbecue for you, Michael? And, and, and where have you, have you traveled somewhere for a really good barbecue? Uh, well, originally I'm from South Carolina, so having moved up here to Maryland where barbecue means different things, um, mm-hmm. big things that I always remember seeing um, in the South, uh, when you go, whether it's a restaurant that considers itself a barbecue place or to a cookout or something like that, um, usually the two big things are brisket and pulled pork, so typically seeing pork and beef as the uh, main phase in those places. Um, then coming up here to see pit beef where I lived here for two years, not knowing what pe- uh, pit beef was, nor <laughs> had I ever had it. Um, so to see different things, um, and, and something else too, when you talk about barbecue is different sauces that people use on the meat that they cook and how much different it can make things taste and how even half of, uh, certain states like South Carolina, the East and West sides of South Carolina use. Uh, completely different barbecue sauces, and you can actually find yourself in a heated debate with a stranger about what is the correct sauce to put on. <laughs> That's passion. A lot of passion goes into barbecue, for sure. <laughs> That's great. Thank That's you. A, that's a thank good you, topic you. to think about. Thank you, mm-hmm. Michael. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny that that in, in not just in our culture, but in a lot of cultures, there's almost like a lifestyle associated with. You know, we're having we're having a cookout. We're having a barbecue. We're having a, mm-hmm. you know, a fish grill. I mean, that the number of <laughs> the number of variations is, are kind of crazy. Right. Oh, Argentina, which I mean, like that the amount of elaborate preparation. You know, to do a proper asado. Oh, when we come back, I can tell my my Marcelo story about uh, the asado that he used oh, to make. Oh, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll be back uh, shortly on Formula Wolf and Food and Wine on WIPR. You can reach us and, and join the conversation, 410-662-8780. What makes American food? What are those 10 archetypal dishes for you in American food? And uh, you can email us as well, formandwolf at wipr.org. Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. 
And we're live today, and we're talking about American food.、Mm-hmm. And the more we talk about it, the more、uh, hungry you get. <laughs>、uh, yeah, that, and the more diverse. It's just a gigantic topic because、really、it's so many things coming together at once. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I think when you, you were talking about things being product driven, that's obvious. I mean, we have, we, the origin of the country and the origin of American food purely was cooking with the seasons because that's what's available.、Mm-hmm. What's, what's available in season and what you could preserve. Yeah, unless you lived in a port city like Charleston where you would get product coming in from other countries at some point when that was an option. But yeah, I mean, you're, you are talking about what's indigenous to your area. That's what's going to influence and control your cooking. And, and you know, post World War II, you have that huge,、um, the, the sort of almost like factory food distribution, that, that world of、uh, convenience and、e- economy, which were, I, th- I think have been really important to the country for sure.、Mm-hmm. But we also, Now,、I've, it, it feels more imbalanced because I think people are cooking more in season and people are expecting that more. So it's, it's kind of an interesting, it's been an interesting evolution to watch. Yeah, we, we had certainly had a period of time in the, the 80s where, you know, the whole cooking from World War II, after World War II. was losing its importance or its influence on chefs and. Uh, we were moving into American chefs truly creating an American food,、uh, which again is broad. And,、um, you know, it was more,、uh, more American people、uh, or people that had, I, I guess I want to say, had been here longer for more generations, it seems like maybe, were becoming more well known as chefs. And,、um, and, and the food was really sort of. Coming into its own, that, that there was, you know, it was less of a restaurant was Italian or, or Asian or a French cooking, which had been so prevalent after World War II.、Um, it, was, it was actually becoming like Alice Waters was having her effect, and we were getting what was actually called California cooking. And a whole bunch of amazing American chefs came out of her kitchen and opened their own restaurants. And then chefs came out of their restaurants. And it, build, it builds through the 80s into the 90s、um, and then you know, creates its own type of cooking. I don't think anybody really ever said they had an American food restaurant you know, prior to that time. Yeah, New, new American. That,、right. That's really kind of what grew out of that. I mean, that's. But I mean, we're, we're of that era where that、we、became、are. a thing.、Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's definitely a lot of what I learned and, and how I worked on food、mm-hmm. it, you know, in the 80s was very much in that vein.、Mm-hmm. Well, like mescaline greens and things that, that weren't available prior to that time period. You know, it was easy to, you know, eventually it became easy to get shallots. It, you could get arugula. I mean, I think. People probably grew arugula in their gardens in order to get arugula prior to that sort of time period. I mean, you had fresh herbs. People had used dried herbs in restaurants prior to that time period. I mean, there were huge changes that occurred, especially in the 80s.、Um, there, that, there, that, there, still, there were still people. When, when I lived in South Philly, the lady next door to me had big planter boxes. And in her planter boxes, one, she just had dandelions in. Oh. <laughs> For、wow. the greens. Sure, of course. Wow. <laughs> Always for the greens. That's neat. Yeah, so anytime yeah. she would do a tagliata,
Mm-hmm. And, you know, always the, the dandelion greens for a salad. Mm-hmm. Right, let's, let's take a caller, and I want to ask you about the Marcelo story mm-hmm. and a different kind of barbecue that you, you touched on last time. Let's go to Peggy in Bel Air. Peggy, how are you? Hi, Peggy. Um, hello, I'm doing well, and I always enjoy your show. Um, you. I came into it a little bit late this time, so I wasn't sure if, if my ingredient or my dish was something that had already been spoken about, but I understand no. Um, okay. My take is crab cakes. Okay, good. Real Maryland crab cakes. Mm-hmm. I'll take your crab cakes. <laughs> yes, you will. And once you've had them, you won't want them anywhere. Well, maybe if, maybe if, if yeah, maybe if your chef makes them. But um, I've gotten to okay. be such a snob about them that I don't order <laughs> crab cakes when I go out. Oh, probably wow. because it's what I the way I grew up with them. Yeah. Um, maybe a little riff on the way I grew up with them. My dad and uncle, when I was a child, would go out. They'd go crabbing, bring them back. We'd have a big cauldron actually in uh, on a tripod with a fire mm-hmm. underneath it. And that was how they would steam the crabs. Awesome. And if and when there was some left over, of course, there would be crab meat and crab cakes would be made. And then eventually, Mom got around to make order or getting the uh, back fin, which used to be what we call jumbo lump now. Mm-hmm. It's not quite. So now I've graduated to jumbo lump crab meat, Maryland, if possible. And I make the crab cakes very simply, not a whole lot of ingredients. The crab is supposed to be the star. I agree. So, so, so what do you put I in there? Is, mm-hmm. You want to listen to how I do mm-hmm. it? or Oh, yeah. You love- Please. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Of course. First time I've done this. First time I've called in. Um, okay, I take one egg, and I uh, scramble that a bit. I Actually, what I do is I use the container that the crab meat came in. Um, mm-hmm. I've dumped the crab meat into a big stainless steel bowl, and it, let it sit. So I take an egg, I beat that up, I add some Hellman's mayonnaise, and I don't measure. I just know how far it comes up on the mm-hmm. uh, container. Mm-hmm. And into that, I mix um, a couple drops of Worcestershire sauce, maybe a half teaspoon of Dijon mustard, a squeeze mm-hmm. of lemon, and what else? Oh, a recent addition, something my mother didn't do, but I would uh, melt some butter, and when it was not real hot, a little bit cooled, I would pour some butter. Again, I don't measure. I just kind of pour mm-hmm. it. And then I mix that up very well. I take my um, crab meat that's sitting there patiently, and I have uh, used a tiny, tiny blender and uh, a food processor, and I've taken three uh, slices of pepperidge forum white bread and um, made breadcrumbs with that. Not tiny breadcrumbs, but sort of coarse breadcrumbs. I mm-hmm. take that and I sprinkle that over the crab meat, and I very gently fold that in, very gently, just so that it's enough that the crab meat is, or the breadcrumbs are dispersed. Then mm-hmm. I take my liquid and I pour that over and again very gently mix that in and then ideally I would form four crab cakes. Nice mm-hmm. rounded crab cakes on a <coughs> buttered um, piece of foil on my baking pan. Then I would take I would have left a little bit of the liquid in the, in the crab meat uh, jar container and I would mix a little more melted butter in with that and then I would kind of paint just a little bit of that over each crab cake. So, yeah, just sort of uh, basting it. It wouldn't cover the whole thing, just a little bit on top. And then after I've let those sit for, say, at least six hours or so, because I never cook them right away, I would, um, overnight is fine, but the um, all the liquid is absorbed into the little bit of breadcrumbs that I have. I would uh, bake it at 375 for 15 minutes. I'd check it to see if it looked like it was done. Maybe go as long as 20 minutes, depending on the oven. And then it's sheer ambrosia. It's, it's just... The best thing you've ever tasted. 
Very oh, nice that's, of you that's to share awesome, that. Peggy. Thank you. Yeah, you're kind to share that recipe. Thank you. Thank you. Hmm. No, that's mm-hmm. just sounds like the the most important ingredient in all cooking is always care. Sure. And that Peggy obviously shows a lot of care. Mm-hmm. But, so, quick, tell me the Marcelo story okay. and a different kind of barbecue. So, Marcelo. Marcelo Vasquez was the chef that I worked for when I worked in Charleston, South Carolina, and he was from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and his family also had a home in Mendoza or ranch. And so he grew up doing ton, you know, the family always did the asado, always doing this, you know, tremendous grilling. They had cattle. And um, I had never, ever heard about Argentine cooking. I mean, I was, you know, in my early 20s when I started working for him and living in Charleston uh, on the Sea Islands, we... He, we had a he had a party for all of the staff and friends of his uh, and a bunch of guys in the wine business that that he and his wife Penny knew, and um, and we I'll just never forget going out there because I felt like I went to a different you know, I I I moved to Charleston from Indiana, uh, you know slightly different flora and fauna and um, going to this place where, that he had picked on the islands to do this grilling thing was. I felt like a giraffe was probably going to be walking by. I mean, it was dry and sandy and there were some weird grasses and there was water everywhere and it was amazingly beautiful and, you know, the type of scenery I'd never seen in my life. Uh, And um, so he had this, I don't know where he got it, but he had this huge grate uh, on, I assume it was on bricks. I don't recall at this point, but, you know, probably a couple of bricks holding up this huge, huge thing that he used as a grill. It was, it was probably 20 feet. I mean, it was gigantic. And, um, when I got there, he had been working all night. So I think I got there around noon to help him. And he had been there since the night before starting the fires, getting things going. And, um, and I remember my father talking about doing, um, pit, pit beef barbecue when he was a kid and talking about how the men would get things going, you know, like in the middle of the night. So it really brought memories of my dad to me. And there were whole peppers on there. There were whole chickens on there. I'd never seen anyone grill whole things before. It was always parts of a chicken. So it was, it was, it was I mean, that, it's build a fire and cook everything. Yeah. And he had a whole pig on there with about five gallons of chimichurri in the center cavity of the pig. It was a huge hog that he had on there. Um, I mean, that had obviously was the first thing he had going that from the night before once the fires were going, but yeah, to have, and, and whole links of sausages and uh, it was amazing. It was one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten. I mean, we all stayed there late into the night. I think we were there all there for like 12 or 14 hours and, you know, just hanging out, drinking, talking, being together, eating, 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 going into the water. It was it was one of the most, um, I have goosebumps. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And I will never forget that he did that for us and shared that whole part of his culture that was so important to him. And he was so kind to bring that to us and share it with us. Because I don't think anybody had any idea what, what he was, you know, that was all new to all of us, this whole thought process of grilling like that. Cindy, you've done an awesome job of teasing the heck out of our Argentine food program. and that is all we have time for thanks for participating with your calls and your emails Uh, if you want to listen to this episode again or any one of the others go to the WIPR website WIPR.org look for the Foreman Wolf page and there's a whole menu you can drop down with uh, different episodes 
If you want to email us, it's foremanwolf at wipr.org to follow Chef Cindy Wolf on social media. You can follow me as Chef Cindy Wolf on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. My Instagram is the real Tony Foreman. Thanks so much for listening. Happy Sunday.